quite an amazing song we just sang if, as we were, had an opportunity to worship together. Did you catch those lyrics of that old hymn? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Can you resonate with the author of this song? And I wonder how in the world he could love me. A sinner condemned and completely unclean. See, there is something about forgiveness that reminds us of standing amazed in the presence of the work of the Son who was sent to be the Savior of the entirety of the world. There's something about standing in his presence and recognizing his love that I think as we walk through our series on forgiveness that we we highlight this reality that Jesus has come to forgive all who call upon him and desire to have this relationship with him. And what does it do? It causes us to stand amazed in the presence of the living God. And when you begin to see yourself for who you are, and just for a moment, think about your own life for a minute. Think about who you are and the kind of person, the kind of actions that you've done, the things that you've lived for, the ways in which you've lived life that were perhaps even against the very Father in heaven, and yet he comes before us in the scripture and he welcomes all who will call upon the name of the Lord and they can find forgiveness in Christ no matter where they've come from, where they've been, what they've done, Jesus begs and calls sinners to repentance. There could be no greater important topic in the Bible in redemptive history than the subject of forgiveness. And we've been talking about this now for a few weeks, and let me just reiterate its value and its significance and its importance and its, and its practical outworking in our lives one day the phone rings. A lady by the name of Sue, I can, you can hear on the other side and filled with tears and just explains this, a series of email messages and text messages that were found all of a sudden from her husband who had been having an affair with another lady. Only to hear these words spoken to a leader to say, how can I forgive such a great offense? Is forgiveness important? <laughs> you better believe it. Having a good theological understanding of forgiveness at that moment for Sue in her life becomes paramount to how she continues to proceed. Another phone call comes in one day from a father named Jeremy pleading and weeping over the phone over a, over a son who had seems to do all kinds of despicable things and squandered all kinds of, uh, and done rebellious acts against the Lord and against their family. And you hear the mother and father proclaim, I just don't know how I could ever forgive them for doing this to our family and rubbing our name in the mud. Forgiveness is incredibly paramount at that moment. Church is having a business meeting. 
Members are gathered to discuss the general affairs of the church and one individual decides to raise his hand and of course he's called on and he all of a sudden accuses the pastor of an ill-motivated leadership right in front of the rest of the church. Who do you think you are, pastor, doing this and calling into judgment in front of the rest of the congregation his leadership? Is forgiveness important then? What about when a team goes to a mission field and they gather up on a mission team and they head over to a distant country, unfamiliar with all their surroundings, and the only people that they have that they're familiar with is the people on their team. And all of a sudden, you get a phone call that says, we don't like 50% of our church that we just planted because 50% of the team is now at odds with each other. Do you realize that even in mission work, that one of the top five issues of a missionary coming home is because they cannot seem to get along with their team. Forgiveness is an incredibly important topic that we've been continuing to go over. Now think about all of these situations. A wife, a father, a congregation, a missionary team. What is at stake if all of a sudden we misunderstand what, why forgiveness is so essential in the lives of believers? Because gospel ministry cannot go forward unless people decide that they want to be unified with, with one another in a way that puts God's glory and mercy on display. You can't say, I hate my brothers, John says, and then go and minister effectively to the gospel work. You cannot come and say, I don't like my sister, or I don't like this individual. If you and I have hatred in our heart towards anyone and are unwilling to forgive and grow in reconciliation, there is a problem that we face if that is the disposition that we have. Forgiveness is so essential to the life of the believer, and we talked about this in Matthew, uh, in Matthew 18. We've been working so diligently to try to understand and build a theology and a definition of forgiveness. And this morning, we wanna cover this reality that forgiveness, a, a conditioned transaction, and we're gonna unpack this reality. Well, what do we know about forgiveness at this particular point? Well, one thing that we know, according to Matthew 18, when Peter says, how many times shall my brother or sister sin against me and how many times should I forgive him? We know it's limitless. We know that in the course of that story, there's a sense in which when sin occurs, forgiveness can, be, can, be, can, can happen, but it has to identify what sinful offense happened. And when people who recognize their sinful offense and they go before the father or go before their brother or sister in Christ, they can be pardoned. Meaning they can be released from that debt, released from that moral evil disposition they used to have or actions that they committed. And we understand that a pardon is there to release someone. Why is it there to release them? Because as they are being released, it does something. It reminds us of the very mercy that we stand in awe of God's amazing grace. That's what it does. Now let's think about this. Let me put all of these elements together this morning to remind us, because this is where we've been. Judicial forgiveness 
is the model for relational forgiveness. And if you haven't been here for the other part of the series, you can go back online and listen to that Matthew 18, those first two uh, messages dealing with this. But judicial forgiveness is the model for relational forgiveness. Now, let's understand this particular definition of forgiveness. I put all these elements together. Forgiveness is the act of pardoning sin with a heart of mercy for the sake of restoration in order to glorify God by putting his mercy on display. Okay, recognize forgiveness is not just there so that you and I can just sit back and go, oh, that was nice. Like I just, I'm, I'm thankful that you now are not at odds with me and you'd rather not punch me in the face, but now we have peace. It's not just to alleviate the tension that exists. It is there for a purpose so that we can glorify God to say, if God forgives, if God is full of mercy, then we should be about mercy as well. Matthew 18 is very clear. Now, as we think about our main focus today, and if you're taking notes, here's here's where you will find this main idea. Forgiveness is a conditioned transaction that occurs between the offender and the offended. Now this becomes really tricky at various components because so often people misconstrue or misrepresent an understanding of forgiveness and don't recognize that there is a conditional element to the whole uh, idea of forgiveness. Now you're gonna notice in your bulletin today there is a lot of verses. Because as we build a theology and we're doing good work at Bible exposition and biblical understanding, please tuck this away as you study your Bible. No theology is built off a single verse. It is built off of the multiplicity of texts that speak on this particular topic. And so now we are at that point where we are transitioning to try to get a sense of the larger purview of what Matthew 18 discussed about God's forgiveness for us and how we ought to forgive other people to a practical understanding. What does it mean then to forgive the way we're supposed to? Well, take your Bible Turn to Matthew, or turn to Luke chapter 17. That's where we're going to begin this morning, but have your Bible handy because we want to use it this morning. This is critical for us to begin to understand this topic. Luke chapter 17, and starting in in verses one to four, I want you to follow with me as we begin to understand uh, these, these dynamics of the command. What is this idea of forgiveness? Follow with me if you would. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one whom they, through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and he turns to you seven times saying, I repent. You must forgive. You may feel like to yourself, is he just beating a dead horse to this reality that Christians must be forgiving people? Yes. You wonder why Jesus had to to get in such great clarity about forgiveness is because so often in the Christian community, people struggle with being forgiving. I mean, is your natural impulse, honestly, when somebody offends you in some way, is your natural uh, response like, 
sweet, I've been waiting for this opportunity to show God's mercy and you have shown it to me, Lord. Is that what's going on in your heart? I bet it's not. I bet your response in your inner selfish heart, just like mine, is like, how dare you? Do you know what I have gone through in order to make this happen? Do you know what kind of provisions have been set in place so that you could experience what you're doing and then you're just gonna throw it all away and then you're gonna insult me? Well, guess what? He's saying no matter what, if sin occurs, forgiveness is mandated. He says, well, what if it happens seven times a day? Well, I don't know about you, but when you're by yourself and you're single and you think to yourself, man, life is great. No one's telling me what to do. And all of a sudden, you, uh, you, all of a sudden, you start to get people around you and you start to introduce relationships into your life. And you might even say to yourself at some particular point, this is so good. I actually, <clears throat> I actually wanna get married and then after you get married, you, you look at your spouse or you think to yourself, what have I done? They are a sinner and they keep sinning against me. Why do they do that? I'm like, I, it's not as easy at that point. You don't just go, well, I'm gonna try wife number two and see if that's gonna make the difference. I don't think she's gonna go for that. I don't think I wanna go for that. You can't just simply say in the course of your lives, you know what, oh, I know what I'll do. I'm just gonna get rid of this friend group and then I'll try to find another friend group. You know what the problem is? Is you will never find a relationship that will exist on this side of heaven that you will not see sin. You and I are always going to be dealing with sin. Sometimes uh, it's gonna be your own sin. It's gonna be the sin of other people. Well, what happens when in now in marriage or now in a family or now in a relationship or now with friends, if they sin against you so many times? I mean, think about this for a moment. Raise your hand if you've been sinned against. Wow. You guys are wicked. I mean, think about the reality of what we are experiencing and how needed a theology of forgiveness is if you have a whole churches that are surrounded in the, in the whole entire world that are filled with sinners. And then someone comes and they come to me as a pastor and they say, you would not believe somebody sinned against me. I'm like, oh my word, I cannot believe it. Like, we are going to experience sin. But our response to that sin and our disposition towards mercy and to forgive even if that sin is seven times a day, no matter how many he's doing. And we've said this over and over again in the numeric values that Jesus is expressing. He's not saying, oh, you've got seven today and that's all you get. You'll have to wait for the other seven tomorrow. He is saying to you as many times as you are sinned against, you must and I must forgive in a way that, that we are called to forgive. Now, why is this significant? Because judicial forgiveness provides the template and the motive for relational forgiveness. You and I will never be forgiving people if we don't understand something about a forgiving God. There's something about him, something beautiful 
that takes place when all of a sudden Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, even seven times or however many times they sin against you, you must say, I forgive. That's not optional, by the way. In the Luke 17 passage, that, that is an imperative. That is a command to forgive. You and I cannot just walk away and say, ah, no big deal. So I'm just not gonna forgive a few people. That is a serious offense against God, as we have seen even in Matthew 18, 21 to 33. It's the template. Now, what does it mean? You know, uh, I was never a good artist, so I always loved to connect the dots because it was a whole lot easier to color after I could connect the dots because I'm a simple-minded person. I like to be able to see something understand its value, well, guess what? You and I would never be able to understand even a glimpse of God's infinite, incredible mercy if he wouldn't have connected all of the dots for us and go, do it that way. He has done us such a significant favor by sending his own son so that we could say, I need that forgiveness that is offered through this one and only person Jesus Christ. It's the template. You don't, you and I don't even know what forgiveness is about unless we had a template to understand relationally what this was supposed to look like. And so he starts there. Now, uh, look at this verse in Ephesians chapter four, and then we're going to turn to another one in Colossians chapter three. But notice this verse. This is quite a remarkable verse in Ephesians four. But remember its context. He built all this theology about predestination and glorification and calling in chapter one. And he's saying, here's who you are in Christ. And then he gets to chapter four and five and six. And he says, here's what walking, here's what being called and being glorified, here's what it should produce. One of those things it should produce is a forgiving person. Notice this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Do you notice the conjunction as? He does this deliberately so that we don't try to say or make a definition of forgiveness anything that is connected outside of God sending his son to be the savior of the world and providing mercy. This is why he's given the template. That template is the as, as God in Christ forgave you. So here's one of the things I want you to think about if you're thinking about the gospel, perhaps even for the first time. You cannot understand personal forgiveness relationally until you first begin to understand the forgiveness that has been given and offered to you from the Father in heaven. As God in Christ forgave you, what a beautiful message. Now, take your fingers, use your Bible, Colossians chapter three. Notice another particular passage in the New Testament that we understand uh, that, that really comes to light when it comes to forgiveness. Colossians chapter three. Notice in verse 12 and 13, have your eyes gaze down to this particular passage. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. You think he's trying to say something? He's trying to say something to us as, as Jesus forgave, you forgive. And he's trying to help us understand there is a vertical 
forgiveness that has been offered to you and I through the compassionate work of Jesus Christ. Now, here's why this is so incredible. Because so often when we think about this, I remember reading a book uh, that, uh, a number of years ago dealing with someone who was struggling with anger. And some church situation erupted in the life of the individual and someone had sinned against them, but ultimately the person would not forgive and they went to some therapeutic method. And here's what the, the counselor is recorded to have given them as instruction. Because what finally came out was, no, I'm not just mad at this sister. No, I'm not just mad at this brother. I'm angry that God would allow this to happen in my life right now. That's what came out. And the response was this. Well, so then you just need to forgive God then. If you forgive God of all of these things that you now hold against him, then you can have a right relationship with him again. What's the problem with that? The problem is God doesn't owe you an apology. God does not owe you a response to, he is giving you the opportunity to be like his son, Jesus Christ. But so often in, in a culture like ours, I have heard this statement on more than one occasion, just forgive God. Can I just say plainly, God needs no forgiving because God is not a sinner. God is holy and just, and he is kind and patient, and yet he knows no sin. Even Jesus, as we get to Hebrews 4, and he says, no one is no, let no one say when he is tempted, I am, I am tempted of God, because God cannot tempt anyone. Why? Because God is pure. He's holy. God's motivation for loving and saving us was something that benefited us. You and I experienced the eternal opportunity to live with him in heaven forever because of his vertical, his willingness to, 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 to forgive us. And this is what we call in the Bible, judicial forgiveness. The word judicial becomes important because judicial holds the weight of standing before a judge. Yes, there is one. Let me tell you, there is one who every person on the face of this planet will stand before who will rightly be able to judge between whether they have truly embraced Jesus Christ and turned from their sin and repented of their sins. This judicial forgiveness is a legal transaction. It is you standing in, uh, before a judge. It is me standing before a judge saying, I am guilty and I throw myself down at your feet and I'm pleading with you, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. There's nowhere else for us to go. This first dimension is often is so critical. Vertical forgiveness, because if we get vertical forgiveness wrong, we often immediately get horizontal forgiveness wrong. But here's thing, uh, one thing I'm very thankful for is that as we think about vertical forgiveness, it was never intended to just stay as something that we could only imagine judicially. God continues to forgive us. I mean, since you've come to Christ, believer, just so that we are understanding of our own condition, have you continued to sin? I'm like, if you haven't sinned this last week, raise your hand, because we want to know. We want to know what you're doing and how you're doing it. 
See, this is the problem. There's something innately, a struggle that each of us have because of our fleshly nature, even after we come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and turn from our sin, is we still struggle with sin. And this growth in being not sinless this side, but it should be a call to sin less in this lifetime. And a commitment, that is what holiness is, a growth in this holy aspect. So what happens is judicial forgiveness gives way to relational forgiveness. And this is exactly what we find in the Bible. Turn, turn to the back, uh, right before the book of Revelation, to the book of 1 John. And of course, we're, we're perhaps you're, you're very familiar with this verse, but I want you to recognize, notice these first four, four verses as as I read them, and then we'll come to the verse uh, that, that, we're, that we're going to mention in a moment. First John chapter one, just the verse, first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too, now catch this, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you that your joy and that our joy may be complete. Now notice this, relational forgiveness helps maintain, it helps maintain the fellowship brought about through judicial forgiveness. Could you imagine all of a sudden, no one in here experienced this, that at one particular moment you confessed, you repented of your sin, and then you just never sinned anymore. That is why 1 John 1, 9 is such a beautiful reality to us as believers, is because we need ongoing forgiveness that has to keep us in fellowship. It maintains the, 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 the family relationship that occurs. And now, when 1 John 1, 9, now look at this verse. If, notice the condition, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. How dare we say we don't need your forgiveness, God? We should not stand before him saying, well, I'm not a sinner. I know so-and-so is over here in pew number five and back row there, but I don't know if I need it. He is saying, if you confess, here's what you can experience. Fellowship with God, because the believers that John is writing to are genuine saints. Some of them may not have been, but what he, but what he is calling the majority of this group that he's writing to are believers. He says, I want you to have fellowship. I want you to know this for sure. And I want you to experience the blessings of God. And it comes through fellowship. Relational forgiveness that models that is willing to recognize that if we confess and if another confesses, we forgive every time, all the time. Now, what is this difference between Judicial and relational. Here's the difference. Let me put it to you this way. In our home, you know, I figured since we're all sinners uh, and we recognize that we all have this imperfect reality to us, I thought, well, if there's one thing that's likely, my family, you, you, like we gathered the kids, I was like, listen, if there's one thing this family's gonna be good at, it's gonna be how to forgive. Because I know there's a lot of sin going on around here. And we, ne we need to know what this looks like. 
Can I say to you, our homes must be homes that our children can recognize, that mom and dad know how to reconcile. They know what to do when things go south and someone sinned. See, but when they're entering into my family, and all of a sudden they're in my family, and even if that's an adopted child or a biological child, they are in the family. And that's what God is saying. Through judicial forgiveness, you enter into his family and no, no one can take that away from you. But as you stay in the family, you're bound to ex still experience the sanctification growth of dealing with sin. So what happens is, if my, child, if my child sins against me, do I say this as a father? That's it. I'm shipping you out. I've, I've done some study online. I, I know a boarding house and... On 8 a.m. tomorrow morning, as a result of your sin, you're done. Like, you're no longer part of this family. Family, you're no longer to communicate with them. No. They don't get ejected from the family. But there is a, dis there's a fellowship that is broken. And when they come, I don't kick them out of the family. We say, we've got to deal with this because Jesus forgave us and we ought to forgive one another. And let's talk about this and let's work this out and let's make sure that we forgive the way Jesus tells us to forgive. So no, they're not kicked out. They are embraced and they are brought back through forgiveness into fellowship once again. And it models this judicial forgiveness from the father. He cleanses you. He adopts you into his family. No one's kicking you out because you, you had struggled with sin. But what he does is he draws you back because he, does, he wants you in his family. If you're here this morning, can I just tell you this? If you're caught in some sin and you know you're a believer and you've just been struggling for so long and you just seem to go back to the same evil trough of things that is despicable in the, in the, in the, in the eyes of God, guess what? There's forgiveness for you. Don't remain there. He wants you back in fellowship with the family. He wants to swing the door open. He wants to, as the prodigal son, see you coming and run and wrap his arms around you. He desires that. This command is so critical to understand vertical and, uh, vertical and horizontal forgiveness. Now, notice this. As we continue to think through this, there is a condition. Have you noticed it in all the passages? If your brother sins, if you confess your sins. Now, let's take this first judicially, okay? Notice in Romans chapter two, take your Bible and turn there for a moment. Romans chapter two, this, this statement that is made by the apostle Paul in Romans two, in verse four specifically, when he says these words, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, God's kindness to you and his love for you is all about leading you and guiding you to one central condition. Repentance. Romans chapter three, notice it because you're already there. Romans chapter three, look at verse 10. Here is the condition of all of us. So please don't hear me say, you know, this is just some and not others. Romans three, 10 and 11. As it is written, 
There is none righteous, no, not one. No one who understands, no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, gaze down to verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Why is repentance needed as a condition? Because we, are, we have missed the mark. We have, we have not met the mark of God's standard of holiness. And when you recognize that, there is no one else, there's nothing else, no church, no religious organization who can forgive you, only Jesus can. Only Jesus can take a person who is broken and when they are willing, based upon their condition, to repent and they turn to Jesus and they, and they ask him for forgiveness. Now let me show you where this is. Turn, turn over to Romans chapter 10. Here's where you see it. Romans chapter 10, verses nine and 10. As Paul is building his theology and understanding of judicial forgiveness, here's what he says. He says, in verse nine, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, do you notice if all the conditional clauses that come as a reality, which means this is what it tells me. If there is a condition to come, the condition is not what denomination I've been involved with. The condition is not the home that I grew up in. It's not the parents that I had. It was their fault because I didn't get to experience something. The condition for judicial forgiveness is based upon your repentance and recognition as for Jesus as Lord of your life. That's what it is. No one makes Jesus Lord. No one gets adopted into the family unless they recognize they come on God's terms and these are God's terms. The terms are you must repent of your sin. This is found in all throughout. Now just let me give you a couple of of verses that help highlight this. Of course, we, we covered Romans 10, 9, and 10. Now look at this one in Matthew chapter 1, verse, or Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, let's, let's look at another one. Look at Acts chapter 2 for a moment. Look at this. And Peter said to them in his sermon at the beginning of, of uh, uh, after Jesus had risen, and after he had gone away, it said, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the indwelling of the Spirit of God and he will seal you. What is the condition? Repentance. Acts chapter three, verse 19. Here's what it says. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins be blotted out. I want you to grasp the reality of this because when you, when you come to the scripture and understand what it's saying, let me be very plain about this. Jesus never endorsed universalism. Jesus never said, believe whatever you want and there's just different shoots coming down into heaven and it doesn't really matter which shoot you were on, you'll just all get to the same place. That is not true. What is true is Jesus coming in Matthew all throughout the gospel saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, you only have a little time left. 
The condition is, do you recognize your sin? If you're here this morning and you're hearing this, and perhaps you have never experienced God's judicial forgiveness, can I just speak to you for a moment? The Father loved each and every one of us so much that he was willing on his benevolent grace to send his one and only son. This is John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him and turns to him can have eternal life. This is an offer that is extended to you based upon the condition that you come and you repent of your sins. No one goes to heaven without repentance and faith. All who come to Jesus come to him humbly, on the knee, bowed, saying, I confess, I'm a sinner. And if you just call out to him this morning and say, Lord, there's no way I can pay for my own sins. I've been living in sin. I've been doing all kinds of things. There's no way I'm going to ever reach the eternal gates of heaven and, fi and find joy in, in your presence apart from recognizing how badly I need your forgiveness. Can I encourage you? Repent of your sins this morning. Find someone here at the chapel that will take you and walk you through the Romans road. So guess what? Here's what you can have. You can have the forgiveness of your sins and the transaction can be made and you can be adopted into the family of God. He wants you in his family. But you can't come on your own condition. You have to come on his condition. All throughout the Bible and Acts, you'll read, repent, repent, repent. What is that, you might ask? It's a turning from it's a turning away from your sin and in turning towards God and recognizing that he alone can do for you what you could never do for yourself. I can't save me. When I finally got to a point as a young believer to realize that I just couldn't save me growing up in a Christian home in a pastor's family and realize it wasn't by going to church, it wasn't by doing Christian things, it wasn't just by reading the Bible, it wasn't just by thinking I was a Christian. So many people grow up in that atmosphere of Christianity and they just think they're a believer because they've been around people who were perhaps believers. But the condition is to repent. And when I finally recognized and was persuaded that, and I saw it in the Bible, and I called out to him through repentance and faith, you know what he did? He saved by his grace the sinful soul of mine so that I could be freed from my sin. And he kept me in the strong grip of his right hand. And no one can take that away from me from this time forward. And now we become ministers of reconciliation. You have the opportunity to be part of something that is way bigger than you. It's way bigger than any particular church. It's so big, in fact, that it's infinitely gracious. It's infinitely large. Because you have an opportunity to be on God's family, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing souls freed and you don't save them. You just get to stand by going, look at, look at him go. Like, look what he does. And you just get to watch it all happen. 
I love hearing missionary stories after church stories and every single story of people coming to an understanding of Jesus Christ and repenting of their faith and turning to him. The Father delights in forgiveness and mercy. This is Jesus' attitude on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. This is not Jesus' universalistic perspective as he's hanging there on the cross going, and now all be saved. Don't read it like that. That's not what's going on. What Jesus is, he is pleading to the Father. Father, if they come, forgive them on the basis of my own death and my own blood. As I hang here dying for the sins of the world, Father, forgive them. His attitude was so much of forgiveness that his last dying breath of all that he could muster as he hung, nailed to a cross, would say to the Father, if they come, grant them forgiveness in my name according to the blood that is spilt on their behalf that I came to give to them. Believer, you have something that's precious and priceless. See, judicial forgiveness is conditioned upon the individual's repentance. Notice this is what happens in Matthew 6 when we talk about relational forgiveness. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you of your trespasses. Now, here's the thing is, remember when we talked about vertical and horizontal? Okay, we could describe them as judicial and familial. You're saved judicially, but you're welcome and you still maintain fellowship with the family. Jesus is talking in the, in the Lord's prayer to the disciples and he's saying, if you're in the family, if your brother sins, well, you have to, if, if, they, if they trespass against you, then you have to forgive them. If you don't, don't come to me thinking I'm gonna forgive you and welcome you back into fellowship until you're right with them and you're back in fellowship. Here's what it tells you. You and I cannot choose to come on any given time to worship or live our lives in a way that we can say, not gonna forgive you, and then walk in this building on any given time or a small group or a D group or a Bible study or your devotions and go, me and God, we're tight, but I hate that guy. But I love Jesus. If you don't forgive, what he's saying is there will be a fellowship barrier between you and God. We'll talk about this even more further as we, as we dive into this even next week about the practicality of Matthew 5. If you are at the altar and something you know your brother or sister has an offense, what do you do? But you're gonna have to wait until then. But here, the relationship is the reality. There's a blockade that happens in fellowship relationally. Relational forgiveness is conditioned upon the offender seeking forgiveness from the offended for the sake of restoration. Why? So we can put God's mercy on display. When a Christian forgives, they are declaring that they intentionally desire to move back into fellowship with this person who has offended them. You cannot say, I forgive you, but I don't want anything to do with you. That isn't real forgiveness. Could you imagine if Jesus, if God did that with us? Like, I love you, you're part of the family, but don't love, love, let me see you again. He doesn't do that. He welcomes us. Now, this becomes critical because so much of the unconditioned response in the culture says something like this. And let me paint a picture. 
You'll see on the news all of a sudden a horrific act takes place and someone sins. It could be a, a number of different sins. And let's just say for the sake of this story or this illustration that this sin was so despicable that it got the individual put in jail. And all of a sudden on live TV that night, the individual is, is interviewed by the news crew and they know why they're in there and, and they're stuck, but they interview the family. And the family says this, and this has happened on more than one occasion. The family says to him, we forgive them. Now, the reality is, is did that offender even want the forgiveness that was offered? See, forgiveness is a transaction that occurs from the offended to the offender in such a way that when that tra transaction takes place, there is something that occurs where reconciliation and restoration can happen. I like to say it this way for so many, uh, for the sake of, of helping the, the understanding, is because it's a transaction, if I go and I have a deposit of money that I wanna make in the bank and I go to the bank and the bank's closed, is there a transaction? No. The transaction is conditioned upon their willingness to accept my money and then the next day I can go in there and see that I have millions of dollars on my account. If the transaction isn't made, then it doesn't happen. So what do you do? Well. Sometimes you are called to have a heart attitude that is ready to forgive because their bank is not open and they are not ready yet. Now, praise God, our struggle even to forgive as sinful people, our Father in heaven is not like that because when you go to him, every time, all the time, when a sinner comes to repent, his answer is always yes. He never has a problem forgiving people. He sent his son so that this transaction could take place. Notice this, and this will be quick as we come to the end. In Acts chapter 16, verse 32, it says this. According to the Philippian jailer, when he's about to kill himself, and, and, the, and this is what the verse says, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. God the Father wanted to forgive. This man finally understood that he was a sinner in need of repentance. He saw the actions of a righteous God through the work of his servants and he was about to kill himself and they said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. When that transaction is made, when you judicially go before the Father, he saves you from all of your sin, past, present, future. It's such a gracious work of what God does. That's why Romans 8, 1 can say, there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You are free. This is why 2 Peter, for example, 3 says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. God is gracious and is waiting for all those who need to repent to come to him. Now, please remember this. This is an important reminder. Consequences are not removed just because someone forgives. You don't just say, well, who cares? <laughs> he asked forgiveness or she asked forgiveness. Don't be so surprised all of a sudden when you're in a relationship and you sin against another person and now you're really genuinely offended and it hurts by what they said or what they did and now it's found out. The reality is, 
you can, you still can forgive and you're still going to be working towards like, you know, you don't go from like, you sinned against me to like, hey, let's laugh it up. And hey, this was funny, right? And like, yeah, funny, right? You just sinned against me. Do you remember that? Like it just doesn't go away instantaneously. But you gotta work at maintaining the very thing you granted because God always maintains his promises. Therefore, we always must maintain the promise of forgiveness. But the consequences are still challenging. Yes, that might mean you have to wait a little bit and keep working on developing that relationship. And there is a, there's a trajectory of reconciliation that is in view. Love this verse, Psalm 103. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. It's not forgive and forget. If God would forgive and then forget, which is the common mantra that people think, then God could not know everything. What God does instead is something much more impressive is he remembers all of your sin and he chooses not to hold it against your account because of the work of Jesus, who he allowed to be nailed to a cross, his blood to be spilled, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He sees them all. And this is, you know what makes forgiveness so hard? Is because you do remember the offenses. Forgiveness is difficult and it's hard to maintain because you remember them. And we're gonna talk about as we walk through this, what does it look like? What do you do when you remember offenses that were against you, but you know that you've made a commitment to forgive the way Jesus forgives so that we can say this in 1 Peter, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This is not just you don't need people to make the transaction. Think of it this way. How does love cover a multitude of sin? It does it through forgiveness. This is not a justification to say you don't need people to make the transaction or you don't have to go to someone. I'll just let love cover it. You would not believe how many times I hear that. Oh, love, love covered that one. Oh, but you're still angry because it's still coming up to me. So you clearly didn't cover it. Love covers a multitude of sins by a heart of forgiveness and a willingness to display his mercy. Forgiveness is a conditioned transaction based upon repentance and faith. And when the offender comes to the offended and he says, mercy, the Christian, the believer, grants it every single time to put God's mercy on display. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your constant love and compassion, your mercy that overflows in our lives and in our hearts, Lord. These are challenging things for us as we continue to live life together. Lord, that we would know your grace and your forgiveness. Lord, I pray, Lord, for any who would be here who has never understood or accepted the forgiveness that you so freely offer. Lord, help them to know your son and repent of their sins and trust in you. In your name we pray, amen.